Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the West Ham Breakdown with me, Jack Elderton, and my mate, Cal. We're recording after West Ham's first loss of the season, so the breakdown is technically back in its <laughs> truest fashion, but um, it doesn't quite feel like that. I felt quite positive after the City game. I don't know about you, Cal. Yeah, I mean, a loss is a loss, obviously, but I think as we will come to discuss, it felt different. We've played City a lot. We've been battered by City a lot. And this battering, uh, which to be fair, it was a battering in parts, but there was elements that I probably wouldn't expect to have seen from a David Moyes side against the best team in the world. Um, and we did see them. So, yeah, there's there's definitely some positives to take away from it, um, as, as difficult as that might seem after a game where we conceded 29 shots I think 15 within the box so <laughs> um yeah it's mixed isn't it because like you say there are some things to take away from it that you have to have to feel are really positive compared to other things we've seen against top six sides particularly when you're looking at like top six performances or performances against the top six I should say last season um which weren't all perfect and and you know there's this this whole legend really around Moyes and his performances against the top six results primarily against the top six and um or lack of results <laughs> um against the top six but you you have to feel that some of the stuff that we did with the ball was much better than than what we've seen previously against teams like Man City and then it's very difficult I think for me anyway to to break down how much responsibility we really have for the for the chances we conceded against them because there is a level at which the gap in the quality of the two teams, even though we have some great players in our 11, uh, is just ridiculous because they're so far ahead of everyone else. I mean, I came away from the game thinking, there's just who's going to go with them this season? It's just ridiculous. That's a ridiculous team. Now that you've added players like Josko Gvardiol, um, Jeremy Doku into that team, um, even to to some extent, you know the options they now have in midfield. They wanted Pakita, but you know with with Nunj and and Kovacic, there's a nice kind of. I, I think we'll talk. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit, like adding all these players who can who can burst past people, and that being something that maybe City 
didn't have quite so much before, but now they've got all these players who are super strong over five yards, can just carry the ball past a couple of players and open things up. Opens a whole yeah different set of possibilities for them. And as always, you know, it's always the case with City and it, it happens again in this game. If you let them get ahead, then Haaland is just you know, a blunt instrument that you're going to get beaten over the head with. It's just impossible to stop it because um, suddenly you have to start engaging higher. Suddenly you have to start committing a few more players forward on your attacks and then the gaps are there and, and the chances come um, for Holland. He did have quite a few chances in this game. <laughs> yeah. So, and um, maybe we were a bit fortunate that he, um, I wouldn't say he had an off day, but didn't finish the chances that he, he did have in the first half. Yeah, I think he could have easily come away from this game with a hat-trick, really. Um, there were chances that, uh, based on last season's form, you would have put money on Holland not missing. Uh, 99 times out of 100 maybe 100 times out of 100 um but yeah i think the yeah the scoreline could have been very very different but i don't think that is to suggest that we were terrible in any way or got off lightly with a 3-1 scoreline i think we were also good for something i think the goal was a was a fair reflection we had limited chances but the chances we did have like the zuma header we could have come away with two goals um were it not for a great save from edison but i think yeah the guardiol in particular i think is a really interesting addition because not only is he ridiculous in terms of recovery defense and and like okay they can press so high up and then what you've if you catch them you've got to then break against Guardiol Diaz Walker on the other side <laughs> it's it's ludicrous um, and even Akanji's no slouch is he um but I think what's what's really interesting is in possession like we saw it happen in the game quite often actually and we'll come on to talk about Doku but with players like Doku who eventually you're you're essentially forced into double teaming with with Sifal Ambo and have to go over there and, and try and stop him and, and fail quite often actually uh, even with the two of them but in Bowen getting forced back to to provide um, some extra cover that sort of pocket of space opens up which for a team that isn't City probably wouldn't be that much of a problem because the chances of a centre-back or full-back being able to have that sort of damage in those positions is is slim but when you've got someone like Guardiola, as we saw, is happy to dribble into the box and shoot and like and take on players, despite being a defender um, by position, is is just lethal. Because okay, what you don't double team Doku and then he just destroys you, and you do double team him, and then you open up the spaces for the likes of Guardiola to destroy you instead. So it's just kind of like they've got an infinite number of solutions to any problem and there's only so many ways you can defend against them before gaps start to open up um it's kind of a war of attrition really they just roll the dice so many times and eventually they're going to land on double sixes and and score <laughs> yeah nicely put you know and they've got john stones to come back into this team as well so it just it's only going to get more terrifying for, for yeah. other teams that, ha- that have to face them still maybe that was one of the interesting things about the game in the first half that allowed us to have a little bit more control than we got in the second half. This is something that Mark Carey spoke about in, in his piece on the Athletic after the game and the way that the game changed from first half to second half. But without Stones and that player stepping up into the midfield alongside Rodri, and obviously they've lost Gundogan as well. Um, in the first half, you see Bernardo Silva playing more in that double pivot in that three-two-five shape alongside Rodri, um, and Walker becoming pretty much the right winger, which is actually one of the strengths I would say of City's team last season was that 
as compared to a lot of teams who employ back three systems who end up, you know, even when you're looking at Chelsea a lot, end up with the, with wing backs in those positions. City have always been able to play, you know, last season it was Grealish and Mahrez on, on the wings. They've got threats on, on both sides of the pitch at the top end of your system as part of that overloading front five unit. In this game, it's Walker on, on the right wing. And I suppose that comparable to Doku, comparable lack of threat on, on that right side makes them a little bit easier to defend. And then in the second half, you see Walker comes inside. They invert the fullbacks, more typical of City, you know, season before last or first half of last season before Stone starts stepping into midfield. You get those inverting fullbacks with Walker and, and Guardiol, um, more of a 2-3-5 shape rather than a 3-2-5. And then you've got Foden out on the right wing rather than double turns with, with Alvarez Silva further forward. And you see those effects on on two of the three goals, I would say. You know, the, the the first goal comes from right at the start of the second half, where Pakita has to um well has been marking Walker, often ending up playing as part of a situational back five defensively for much of the first half, um, tracking Walker all the way. Um he steps up. You have uh, end up then from the first half being more kind of four, two, three, one, a lot of the time five, four, one in a pretty awkward 4-2-4 shape in the first 25 30 seconds of the of the of the second half cuz Packers are pressing up onto onto Walker that creates a space because there's two players now who are a real threat Silver and Foden on the right hand side Emerson has to step across uh, and that allows uh, also should say that the the 10 split wide which is always a problem when you play these systems with a with a 4231 because it pulls your sixes wide as a result of that that creates the space to play vertical to Haaland center back steps out no cover you're all 1v1s now in in the defensive line and as soon as you get players, whether it's Doku or, or the others, obviously it's worst if it's Doku. I felt for Sufal afterwards. I tweeted he's going to need <laughs> yeah. cryogenic sleep, not cryotherapy. I mean, it was a tough shift for him. Um, so much worse when it's Doku. But any of those players, 1v1, they're, they're going to cause you a problem. And it was unsurprising that it led to the goal. And then very briefly, I should say the second as well. You know, that comes from having Silver in that more advanced position, able to find a, a, a pass. Um well, able to go through, doesn't he? As Alvarez, I think that plays the the the, the pass that he does, um, making the run through the the defense, um, and and Haaland does well not to not to touch it on the line. I don't know whether you think we could have done anything that much differently. To me, it felt more like, and someone will come on to talk about and be sort of the focus of the episode. Um, losing Alvarez was maybe more. Obviously, City's change is massively impactful. We just talked about how they led to the to the first goal straight away, and, and that gave them a much bigger foothold in the game. We're very good defending a lead, um, but losing Alvarez felt like we just lost uh, so much control of the of the match. Yeah, massively, and I think it it should come as no surprise either. I think we sort of had a had a taste of this in the Brighton game and seeing how. Alvarez's intelligence is intelligence uh, out of possession is so integral to us being able to track those sort of positional rotations. And I think, I mean, Brighton's positional rotations are are obviously notoriously good, but I would say that some of the rotations we saw from City in the second half are, are some of the best I've ever seen. And I think defensively, you'd be asking a lot of anyone, even the best defence in the world, to to track those for a full 45 minutes. And losing someone like Alvarez, who has proven how well he reads those movements and and regularly chooses to follow the right man and, and track the right runner and, and know which runner's the decoy and which one the ball's actually going to go to and knowing when to not track because they're going to be offside so it can't go to them and that sort of thing. And losing that, I think, was was huge because we didn't have another player who could come in and, and 
and do that without us experiencing some sort of drop off, whether it's because they're less mobile or whether it's because they're less comfortable in those positions or whether they maybe just don't read the game as well as Alvarez does. Um, I think it was to be expected. And I mean, I think any team against this city side, like we say, if they continue to turn the screw against you like that for 90 minutes and particularly the way they played in the 45 minutes, I think even with Alvarez on it, we probably would have still ended up at the same, um, result in the end I think um, just because of how good they are um, the the chances would have come in different formations I would imagine because they probably would have gone actually Alvarez is still there so let's go and try things in other places in the pitch where he isn't um, because they're that good and, and they they adapt so well um, but yeah it, it was a it was a pivotal moment in the game um, and, and it was a shame because I think whilst they did obviously dominate possession for large swathes of the game I still felt like we were competitive I didn't there wasn't any point where I felt like oh we're, we're out of this and we saw that with the Zuma header which I already referenced that that again could have also been a pivotal point because at that point we could have taken the lead again and and then who knows what would have happened from there um but yeah I think it, it was disappointing but it's also kind of nice to 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 look at Alvarez and realize how good a player he is uh, and sort of feeling that absence um should give us confidence that we really have sort of landed on a, a really, really good player and what increasingly looks to be a very, very good value deal, uh, given the levels that he's shown in the Premier League so far. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's nice when when the next match always, you know, backs up a point you made on the previous podcast. But, you know, I talked then about <laughs> it being very important already and the lack of natural six cover and, you know, it shows straight away, doesn't it, in the City game, just not having that profile in the squad of a player who can do what he does, whoever you put in that six of the midfielders that we have, whether it's Thomas or, or James, or um, I suppose Lucas could go in there as well. Um, it It's not perfect. It doesn't, you don't get a player who can offer what, what Alvarez does. And I think we can talk a little bit more before we go on to, to what we did with the ball about um, what we did without the ball. And I suppose one of the things we can talk about there is, an, is another point we'd already made on the pod right at the start of the season, which was the likelihood of in games like this, Packer to playing on the on the left to allow us to play um, Will Prowse, Alvarez and, and Suchek together. Um, I think that makes quite a lot of sense, especially when you see what Packer to does in this game and how well he plays starting as a left midfielder, but not really playing as a left midfielder for any of the game. Um, and also, I think, again, something that's impacted when, when Alvarez goes off is that you lose Will Prowse in that position just ahead of the the, the two um, double sixes or double eights, depending on how you look at it. And, um, and he goes deeper. And I just, I increasingly feel like the, we're a much worse team when 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 he ends up in that deeper um position i think he's probably going to be more useful for us in that position um or better for us in that position when we're playing against weaker sides but against teams where we're going to have to sit in and not have the ball as much i do think that it starts to expose some of the weaknesses he has in his game and that aren't quite shown up when he's playing ahead of those two really solid midfielders and then also you get you know what what you get from him with the goal when he's playing in that more advanced position because right now um, he's giving us something we haven't had since Jesse was here which is that number 10 who can contribute goals and assists as well as the striker which is a big part of being effective as a counter-attacking team yeah no 100% and I thought the goal was 
it was so nice on a number of levels. I think seeing that run was was just brilliant. Um, the way he sort of tracks it and bursts from deep, but also I was really happy for Sufal, who, like we said, it would have felt unfair for him to come away with nothing because I think the shift he had to do on the other end of the pitch against Doku was just, I wouldn't have wished it on anyone. And um, I mean, yeah, he, he got torn apart on a fair few occasions, but I think all things considered, he didn't do an absolutely terrible job. Um, I think he tracked him relatively well. Um, but a player like Doc, Doku, who I would say is arguably, if not the probably most effective dribbler in Europe's top five leagues on current form, and certainly based on last season in terms of what he can do over five, ten yards, uh, both going left and right, um, makes it a nightmare for a defender because you can't just show him out on one side because if you do that as we saw he'll just do a little heel chop and take you on the insider which he loved doing throughout that game he did it at least three times I'm pretty sure um but yeah it was nice that he got the assist and yeah I agree with you I think it's it's definitely preferable to have uh Ward Prowse in those more advanced positions I think against yeah like you say against weaker teams that maybe aren't gonna closed down as effectively and I think again in this game I saw things from players that I didn't even really know like I thought Julian Alvarez's counter pressing was just crazy like he was just on it 24-7 and he's a player that I watched a lot at River Plate I think I might have even written have written stuff about him on the site potentially a while ago and we'd been tracking him for a while and that wasn't an element of game that I was especially familiar with I hadn't seen much of it um and since Guardiola's had him he's turned him into this counter-pressing 10 which is just not a not a pathway that I saw Alvarez going in but I think yeah like you say Ward Prowse in deeper positions against weaker opposition where he has a little bit more time and and can be the player that sparks the counter with his sort of long-range distribution is fine but I think finding him on the ball in those deeper positions where you don't have those moments and I felt like he wasn't as impactful um just because of the nature of you know being pressed by the likes of Alvarez, uh, Silva. I mean, everyone had to go. Really, don't they? That's that's why they work so well. Is that every single one of them is is effective at everything? Um, but it's yeah. also defensively for him, isn't it? I mean, part 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 of what you end up doing is is what Suchek and Alvarez did a lot for the first half, which is you know become centre backs a lot of the time. You're filling in, you're filling gaps. Always, City really good at constantly poking, making runs in behind. So whether Alvarez is surging in behind, if it's not him, then there's going to be Silva rotating with someone and making a run in behind, or it'll be Foden um, making a run in behind. There's always someone um, yeah. pulling that defence back. Haaland is always applying that pressure on the centre backs very rarely comes back and receives the ball. And then when he does, it's such a surprise that boom, City scores straight away because you pull a centre-back out. Um, and, you know, that doesn't really, I, to me, from what we've seen so far, play to Will Prowse's strengths in a way that you kind of like him to be the guy that maybe will surge out and press something or reset the opposition or be able to, you know, pick up the loose balls by floating ahead of the those two players rather than doing all of that tracking and you kind of lose the, those other bits that you get from him uh, defensively. I don't want to stray too far away from, from Lucas because I do <laughs> want to talk about him a little bit before yeah. we come back to talk about Doku because I know you want to talk a, about the, the potential of a winger that goes both ways and what that could do for West Ham as, uh, 
using what, what it did for City as an example. But I think Pakatov, we should talk about him for two reasons. One, because it's a nice summary of why the starting position in a starting formation on footmob.com means absolutely nothing <laughs> when it comes to, to how a player actually plays and what role they take up for the team. Because um, although he ostensibly is a, is a left midfielder in that 4-2-3-1 shape, he's not really playing as a left midfielder at all in the game. He obviously, as we've spoken about, does a big shift at left wing back at times, but then with the ball, which is something we're going to talk about at length after this, um, he becomes almost really a six. You know, he's, he's receiving the ball off of the defenders. He comes into central areas. War Prowse is up sort of playing off or behind um, Antonio and, um, and Bowen as part of a sort of front three. And Packard is the guy who's taking the, the, the passing load. You know, he's... he's controlling what we do with the ball from a from a deeper position two very different roles in possession and out of possession uh, neither of which was much left midfield but both <laughs> executed very well yeah yeah he was definitely one of the players that I came away with feeling pretty happy about which has been the case most times I've watched him recently to be honest I think it's we I think we mentioned it on a previous pod but since that city bit it's just I don't know what it's done but but it's lit a flame under his ass for sure like he's just turned into an even better player than we already knew we had and and we knew we had a good player last season um but the out of possession stuff has been particularly impressive I think not not because we didn't think he was good at that. Like we saw his tenacity and that sort of stuff, the the pressing and the sort of uh, dogged energy uh, out of possession. We saw a lot of that last season. Um, but at times there was an element of sort of headlessness to it uh, where he would he would make the wrong decision and, and over-press and then get breezed past and then put us in an unfortunate position. But I think the development and progression that he's made in that facet of his game in terms of making smarter decisions out of possession, not over committing, um, maintaining positional rigidity when necessary and sort of knowing which gaps to plug if people have been pulled out of possession. And I think I don't want to jump in. Pub- that's the biggest thing. That, but <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest yeah. thing for me. What you just said about um, covering other other people, always remaining part of the system is the biggest yeah. development for me. You see it so much in the city game is that he does still go and press at times, but when he does, he will slot into the closest position and allow everyone else to slide across. So there's moments in the game where Ward Prowse becomes that left midfielder mm-hmm. or left wing back because Packard has drifted into the middle. He's pressed something, but then he'll slot into midfield. A lot of the time last season, you're talking about that headlessness. He'd go and press something and then he'd not be part of the team after he'd been beaten. He'd just be floating about with no one covering where he'd left and him not covering then the, the compensation, compensatory movements that are being made by, by other players. It, it would open gaps that he is now seeing and plugging when he is beaten, which is a huge, huge development in his game. Yeah, and I think that's why we've seen him become so much more effective. I think there were so many question marks last season, not about him being a good player, but him being a good Moyes player and how much potential he had in a system that at times... Um, Strangle you is not the right word, but do you know what I mean? It's so repressive in certain phases because you have to follow everything by the by the law. Um, like, I mean, <laughs> it's, it seems weird to say it, but Moyes is such a systems manager. I mean, he's not he's not Juego de Posición or anything like that, but he has his own rules. Um, and if you cannot follow them, you will swiftly be be moved on. And I think it's been really, really impressive to just watch Paqueta block into just 
a, a really well-rounded, almost perfect Moyes midfielder in that he does all of the hard stuff that Moyes wants him to do. And I think there's probably an element of, because he's progressed so much in that respect and, and Moyes will have been pleased with that, I think Moyes has taken the reins off a little bit as well. He's gone, well, you've earned this. And then when we're in possession, he gives Paqueta a little bit more license to roam and freedom than he might otherwise have given to a midfielder who was failing on the other end of the pitch. And I think it's sort of that that relationship between him and Moyes that is developing whereby we can get the best out of Paqueta um, in terms of what his best technical abilities are. But Paquette can also bring the best out of Moyes now because he's learned how to operate within this system. And and I think it's it's a huge reason as to why we've probably been a lot more successful this season uh, than we were last season. Just because, A, he's sort of started to understand what Moyes is about. Obviously, the addition of players that are also learning the system much quicker than some of the additions we had at the start of last season. Um, Alvarez being an obvious one. Um, but yeah, it's it's been brilliant. And I think... We we kind of joked before the pod um, about how when the bid from City came in, it was too much money to turn down for the player that he was, but not enough money now for the player that he's become. And I think if, if they were to come back in with another bid, we could we could say, well, this is the player that you bid eighty five million for before. Now he's added this, this, and this to his game. So let's have another twenty mil, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you a couple of minutes on on the impact of a winger that can go both ways based on Doku's <laughs> performance. And, and then we'll move on to talk about what West Ham did uh, with the ball and, and why we're, we're pleased with that. Yeah. Well, I, I will keep it short because I think there's not, we've, we've touched on a lot of it already, but for those of you that have been long time listeners of the pod, you will have known about sort of my frustrations with Saad Benrahma um, in certain uh, phases, particularly when he gets into the final third and, uh, a large part of this is down to the fact that when he does get there, he obviously has a real tendency to want to shift onto his stronger right foot, which is completely understandable. He's a right-footed player. Um, and often this is something that's held uh, as a sort of excuse. Um, oh, he's a right-footed player playing out on the left. What do you expect? He's obviously going to want to drift into the half space. That's fair enough. He's obviously instructed to do that as well. Um, and whilst it can open up spaces for Emerson, I think there is some frustration because it can, particularly in transition, nullify us a little bit because rather than having someone like Doku who is happy to drive to the byline and then and then use his weaker foot to put a cross in, Ben Rama can sort of stifle attacks and allow defences to reset in front of him as they retreat back into their positions. And then all of a sudden we've got a much more difficult task on our hands. Um, and I think what was especially interesting with the Doku performance is that he was deployed very much as a winger, 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 as Guardiola described him, um, as compared to someone like Grealish, who has largely been a retention specialist um, in terms of keeping the ball keeping possession, recycling it, creating opportunities. Um, whereas Doku has a massive element of risk in that he's given the license to pretty much do whatever he wants because he's so good at it. Um, and I think, yeah, what was especially interesting is that you would expect a winger, winger, winger on the left side to be left-footed because he's going to drive to the byline, beat his man on the outside and put a cross in. But I think what it raised is the real strength and value of a two-way winger in that Doku, despite sort of hugging the touchline and really causing Sufal problems on the outside is actually a right-footed winger um, who, because of that, can cut inside like Ben Rama, but it's not all he can do. He's as comfortable taking you on the outside. And 
the danger of that is that for a defender, whether it's Sufal, whether it's, I don't know, prime Philip Lahm, you're going to struggle because you think you can shift him onto his weak foot or shift him into a space where you're comfortable. And as soon as you start shifting him in one direction, you see it with Doku, he, he does a little heel chop or a ball roll or a step over and cuts inside. Or there was one moment, I think, where he was double teamed by Bowen and Sufal and he sort of, he rolled it across one way and then within half a second had used his other foot to pass back inside. And in that motion, he dragged both Bowen and Sufawa yard into him and created the space behind for, I think it was Alvarez to receive the ball and drive into the box. And it's sort of that, that role in that he can be a direct counter threat. He can be a facilitator. He can be a take on like winger. He can do all of those things just because he's comfortable going both on the outside and the inside. And I think this is something that, if we look at the squad and how we're going to build it moving forward and areas for improvement, I think adding a player like that in Ben Rama's position, who, as we've established, doesn't need to be left-footed. He can still be right-footed. We just need someone who has shown the ability to go both inside and out. Um, and I think that would really make us even more dynamic in attack and, and would be the next logical point of progression for me. And for any of you that want a name... Um, go and look at Armand Loriente at Sassuolo because he is showing signs of being able to do this whilst also remaining an incredible goal threat um, and set-piece threat as well. So someone to keep tabs on, I think, if this is a position that we're going to want to strengthen in. There are a couple of things we're not going to not going to talk about on this episode that maybe people would expect us to, but we have spoken already on the pod at length, really, about Nayef and, and his struggles so far this season. Obviously, he makes another big mistake in, in this game. There have been calls from certain sections of the fan base that he should be dropped, but he's way, way, way ahead of um, Angelo in terms of the other option um, on the left side of defence. And if you move Zuma across to get Mavropanos in, then you create your other issues in possession that um, we talked about on the KUMB podcast back in the day about build-up and, and having Zuma on the wrong side and and the problems that that caused in terms of um, the fluidity of our build-up on the left side, which is so important to how we play. Um, so, yeah, I think it, to me it's pretty obvious that Agurd is the pick and, and has to be backed um, in that position through um, these struggles. And he has a lot of um, well, a skill set that makes him a very good centre-back on, on a good day. And he just has to continue to work to make sure that he has more good days than bad days. I do feel a slight element of we've been here before because Issa Diop had a very similar baseline of <laughs> abilities that, that made him a good centre-back, but he consistently made mistakes that undermined that. Um, but I think we're, we're up a level right now with a GERD from where we were with, with Diop significantly. Um, and that gives me a much more hope than I had previously in in, in situation just like this um so we're going to avoid talking about that in too much depth and talk a little bit more we've talked about him already this episode but edson alvarez um how important he's become and actually what he facilitates being the deepest midfielder um and how actually he ends up becoming a centre-back for most of the game half the time because we've seen against brighton him dropping between the centre-backs and, and playing uh, making a back five out of possession um, to track Evan Ferguson's movement or Danny Welbeck. I think those were the two in that game, making sure that there was was never that uh, overloading of the of the two centre-backs. We've already talked a little bit about him dropping into the back line at times against City to match the runs of, of players like um, Silva, Foden um, and Julian Alvarez. Um, but let's, let's talk about him dropping between the centre-backs in possession 
and the shape that that creates for us. We talked about Packeter coming inside and how actually I think for a lot of the players in the squad, it, 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 it really helps. Um, and someone we, I mean, we're just talking about now for good. It makes him so much better because if you look at the way that City press, City are pressing from a 4-4-2 shape. That gives them two on the top line, on the first line of their press, on the first line of our defence. If Alvarez drops between, you have a three. That gives you a good on the outside of the opposition block, which allows all of those switches, diagonals, all of that stuff to to be far more impactful because he's got the time to line things up and he played a, a few really lovely passes in the game didn't he yeah no he did and I think it's yeah I, I don't want to, not like a get out of jail free card but I think he almost is that for for any other defender who's less comfortable under pressure and to be fair to a gird he is pretty comfortable under possession but uh, under pressure rather but someone like Zuma who maybe would be more inclined to just go long if he's pressed um, to be able to have the sort of bounce option or even just to pass it into Alvarez who's happy to receive it on the turn and then and then play forward or play it back to Zuma or play it across to to a gird and open that passing lane up I think just having someone who is so happy to just get on the ball irrespective of how close his nearest man is or I hate to draw the comparisons but not dissimilar in terms of role to what Rice would do in terms of just coming and offering an outlet whenever there was um whenever we were struggling to build up at the back or wherever someone looked like they weren't comfortable in possession just constantly being that guy that's like yeah I'll have the ball I'll have the ball that's fine and I think that was going to be that was something that we were really worried about um how we would replace that within the team uh, with Rice going and who was going to take on that burden and I think um, that's just one element of, of how important Alvarez has been. But I think as well, positionally, like you say, by splitting that that um, centre-back partnership and and spreading it wider across the back line also gives Emerson and Sufal the licence to pin themselves a lot higher up, um, which, A, allows them to receive the ball in more advanced positions, which helps with progression, but also um, pins back some of the wingers as well, which affords Agurd and, and Zuma more space because they've, because whoever's defending or marking Emerson or, or Sufal is is further away from, from the back line. So therefore there's more time on the ball and more time for Rigger to get his head up and look for Bowen and hit that pass rather than um, just punting it long because he's got two seconds less and he's just got a hit and hope kind of. Um, so yeah, it, it's, been a, it's been a really great addition and I think has done some way to solving the 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 fabled horseshoe problem which we had for so long um when we didn't have someone like that and i think as well it's something as minute as the positions in which they receive the ball i think rice would often look to receive it either between the left back and the left center back or just in front of the left center back whereas alvarez coming in and and splitting on the right hand side of the the left center back like you say has has enabled a good to open up those lanes a little bit more easily and and find the players in the channels ahead of him, which has made us look a lot more comfortable in possession. We are just suddenly able to add a lot more. I mean, a lot more is saying a little really when you think about the way that West Ham got up under Moyes and we've already like we were chatting on the last podcast weren't we about the podcast before that about why combinations and always needing to use them but there's a lot more verticality in the way that we build up we're seeing yeah. um, a girl play those straight passes into into Antonio or into Will Prowse um, and in terms of being able to go from playing wide, obviously the back five kind of encourages that because Alvarez comes between it, allows you to to play into the fullbacks, allows the fullbacks to run up the flank a little bit. Um, 
coming back into the centre then and threatening in the centre, one of the important players, I think, to, to help us do that at the moment, not only Pakatab, who's floating really nicely in the middle of the pitch um, in that system, but but Emerson actually, I think, has done a really, really good job of carrying centrally um, and committing players, which then allows other players to pick up a little bit more space. Um, it creates problems for defences when everything is always wide, 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 wide. And then Emerson comes surging on a, on a carry through the middle of the pitch. It creates issues. And he had one moment where Akanji had to, had to intervene to put the ball behind, nearly led to a, to a chance, what well, led to a chance and nearly led to a goal for us. Um, uh, with, with one of those runs. So he's, he's become a more important player and is, is better served, I think, uh, by this usage of Alvarez between the centre backs. It allows him to, situationally become more like a wing back um conversely on the other side i think that is becoming more of a although he gets the assist in this game i just think generally in terms of the makeup of his um his his game so far i think he he becomes maybe a little bit more of a weakness um in that system because there's a little bit less threat on that side especially when that, when that's magnified by the fact that if you're if you end up in that three and, and the wingbacks do go high and Emerson and, and, and Sufal, you get Bowen in a position that I don't particularly like as well. So you've got a combination of two players that are a bit awkward fits then on the right-hand side, one that maybe doesn't have the, the, the dribbling threat of Emerson in, in Sufal and also Bowen doesn't necessarily have... I don't know, the creative ability of a Fournals or a Kudus or a Ben Rama or someone who's can receive and, and dribble past someone. Um, he retains the ball quite nicely, but, but doesn't necessarily offer a lot in terms of taking on the centre-back or threatening too much um, in the half space against a settled defensive unit. So I wonder if that's... Um, he talked about left wing being sort of the next area to, to prioritise, but after that, maybe right back being a position where having a little bit more flexibility there um, would, would help us build on... on, on what we what we already have in terms of an in possession approach against top sides. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think that would be the two priority positions for me. Whether it's next summer or, or whether seeing how we're getting on by January, whether it's then uh, maybe you bring one in um, just to sort of if we've got some sort of charge on the go and we want to bolster, then then that could be a, a position that we look at. But I think. I think just to like, I think Sufal can be a positive in certain situations. I think defensively, he's a is generally a pretty pos- positive defender. Um, I think last season that was less so the case, but I think everyone just had a bad season last season, to be honest. But I think this season, particularly in one v one defending situations, he's been he's been very good. So it's always been the case. I always think back to that game against Grealish when he was still at Villa and the sort of rivalry that blossomed from that and uh, and has seemed to endure. But th- those performances are, are, are good. But I think he doesn't profile... hide as well. That's a, that's a no, really exactly. big part of it. Is he, yeah. he? You know, he he will get beaten playing in that position, but it yeah. doesn't stop him from going out and taking the one v you know taking on the one v one always. That's a really 100%. important important part of protecting the defense when you're when you're so deep a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that's that's just it though. It's like he'll, he's good in some games, but in other scenarios, you wouldn't mind having a different profile. And I think even if it's not a case of like out and out replacing Sufal, I think obviously he it probably is the position that we do want to upgrade in after left wing for me. But I think it's not to say that Sufal needs to be removed from the squad. I think he's still a very important member of the squad and and a very good player to have dependent on the opposition. But I think I look at the other right backs we have and go, well, we just don't have 
that right-sided Emerson. We don't have that profile. So I think balancing the squad out rather than just thinking, oh, we need a new starting amazing right back for 30 million pounds or whatever. I think you can find someone that just has a similar profile to Emerson on the right-hand side so that you just have that flexibility of being able to take different approaches dependent on the opposition rather than just having to every week go out and go, right, okay, Emerson's on the left, Sufal's on the right, and that dictates how we play because one of them's good at one thing and one of them's good at the other. Just it's the it's been the same thing for ages, right? It's just it's been a long term balancing of the squad and realigning the profiles so that we have a bit more versatility and and dynamism and diversity in the way we play. And we've seen that this season, and in, in we've we've performed well in various different scenarios because we've been able to adopt different styles of play and play players in different positions and ask them to do different things. Whereas previously we've kind of been wedded to one system because we've only had the players to do one system. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very, very, very briefly, because I'm, I know we're running short on time and we do want to talk about a certain Italian who turned up at the London stadium uh, this weekend. Substitutions, a little bit more proactive in this one. I thought it was really funny because they ended up stood on the sideline for forever whilst set pieces <laughs> just continued to happen. Uh, so every time the ball went out, it was a corner or a free kick or whatever. And it was just, they weren't coming on. Um, but Kudasan Ben Rama came on. And it didn't really do very much for us, did it? No, I think the impact-wise, it wasn't. It wasn't massive. Um, there was there was glimpses, particularly from Kudus, that I thought like, there was a few moments where he carried centrally and sort of drove through and added a, added something that we hadn't necessarily had uh, earlier in the game, but certainly not in the last couple of seasons since prime Lingard really in terms of a player that's just happy to get on the ball and run as fast as he can towards goal and, and shirk people off and and whether he actually gets the goal isn't important because if he doesn't chances are he's probably been dragged down to the floor and won you a free kick in a pretty dangerous position which if World Prowse is on the pitch is as good as getting through on goal really because you've probably got as, as, as much likelihood of at least getting a shot on target for someone um, so yeah I thought there was glimpses um, that kind of confirmed all the things we've already said about Kudus and sort of the impact that he could have. But in terms of an actual shifting the game, I think neither of them really had the chance um, to do that massively. Um, But again, that's kind of just, (laughs) you're asking someone to come on and have an impact against probably the best team in the world. So um, it's it's as difficult a task as any substitute could possibly have. Yeah, I thought I think it's I think it's very difficult and and harsh. I I would say to assess their performances based on you know or assess them in any way based on um, this twenty five half an hour against against cities, particularly given the situation we were in in the game with it turning in City's favour at that point. Um, what I would say though is that we you know we talked about lack of natural six cover and how that shifts people around and maybe makes us a little bit less effective when you lose Alvarez. I also just think again we see the problem with as much as we would like Jared Bowen to be an able deputy for Mikel Antonio going through the middle, it just, it just doesn't really work that well. Mm. Um, and certainly not when you need someone to be a physical presence for you at the top yeah. end of the pitch to help you counter, it just kind of doesn't work. Um, and, you know, with Divine Mabama playing an important role for, for the youth team, uh, they got a fantastic result against Celtic. Um, and Danny Ying's always going to make the bench because he's making a huge amount of money and you're not going to pick Mabama yep. over him to, to, to make the bench. And you want Ings for different reasons for 
if you need someone, like we've said a million times, if you need to change the game in a different way to put a finisher on the pitch, um, you'd, you'd rather be able to bring Danny on than if you're defending a lead, then you maybe would prefer Divine. Um, but it's just a bit of a problem, I think, in the squad makeup right now that because of that, there isn't really, there's nothing that makes sense. And Antonio is going to have to come off 60, 65, 70 most games this season if we're going to manage his minutes and make him a more effective player rather than someone that starts the season on fire, falls away and offers very little for most of the rest of it in terms of his goal scoring output. He'll always give us a platform, but goal scoring is something we do need to get from him. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that is a is a, a problem going forward and something that we maybe can talk about a little bit on a, on another pod. I think, you know, Corne didn't make the bench for this one and he, he's, again, he's going to be offside all the time and he's not physical enough, but at least just that he has got a different notch of pace to, to Bowen, which might yep. give you something else through, through the, the middle. But yeah, we'll see as the season goes on. I think that's the kind of thing that maybe after 10 games, seeing all the different subs that have happened, we've seen Danny come on a few times and it not really help. We've now seen Bowen go through the middle and it made us a lot worse as well. We'll see all the different things that Moyes will try, I think, over these first 10, 15 games and then be able to reflect on it and say, is this working or, or do is this something that actually we do need to address in January because because of the fact that Antonio is the age he is and he's not going to be able to go 90 every week and we therefore do need someone who's going to make some kind of an impact on the game rather than losing one of our main strengths as a team every game for the last 20 minutes, which would be a really big problem <laughs> across the whole season. Let's talk about Paulo de Cano uh, being paraded before kickoff at, um, at the stadium, uh, full coverage on socials, interviews, um, all the rest of it. I think we should start talking about this by saying, and I was talking to Cal about this before we started recording the podcast, we, we had a, a, a decent length conversation talking about you know how, how how can we approach this issue what's the most sensible way to to address it um and i want to start by saying that you know i don't think anyone should um particularly be forced to recount their or renounce i don't know what the right word is idolization of 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 paolo uh for what he did on the pitch for west ham um, at a time when he was a really important player for the club and, and he's exactly the kind of player in terms of what he offered as a footballer that, that is celebrated as a West Ham player, having that something else that, that gets you off the, off your seat. And that is always going to make you, um, someone that's, that's fondly remembered, um, at West Ham. And I don't think anyone should be forced to, to forget that or, um, or grapple with with those memories of, of 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 what he did as a player for West Ham. What I do think, though, is that the club needs to be more conscious um, of who he is as a person, um, his his obvious political views. Um, I understand that when he was at Sunderland, he did go some degree to renouncing his. Uh, staunch <laughs> support of, of, of fascism as displayed when when he um, saluted whilst playing for, for Lazio and then said he was a fascist, that you know, I am not a racist, I am a fascist, which is just a wonderfully idiotic uh, line <laughs> in itself. Um, you know, But he still has a duck's tattoo on his arm. And I think what the club need to be clearer on, and I think this is the way that I would approach this is- issue, is that West Ham United Football Club should play a role in shaping what their fan base looks like um, and and how their fan base behaves. And there is a link, as as hard as it is to grapple with, um, between Paolo 
um, and Paolo's time as a West Ham player and then Paolo's later immortalization as a West Ham player and the emboldening of some of the worst people around the football club. And those people are going to exist around every football club in the country, um, but a really important part of supporting those clubs and, and, and managing those clubs and protecting those clubs and protecting other fans at those clubs is not allowing those voices to be louder and not encouraging, certainly not encouraging those voices to be louder. And for some people, um, and I'm sure the number is, is much smaller than the number of people who idolized Paolo for what he did as a player. There are some people who will idolize Paolo for the duck's tattoo on his arm and for the salute at Lazio, um, and for his words on, on Mussolini. And, um, and that needs to be remembered too. And the club should be more conscious of that. Um, and all I will say to, to sort of affirm or reaffirm or make clear to anyone who's still struggling with this, the link between those individuals and Paolo is that in Prague, massive celebrations, Fiorentina players going up to get their medals. Paolo Di Canio's name starts ringing around the West Ham end and the two people next to me are, uh, are Nazi saluting. The link exists. Um, and for me, the club should play more of a role in controlling um, that link and, and and making sure that those people aren't don't feel welcome um, in they shouldn't feel welcome generally at West Ham, but they sh- certainly shouldn't feel welcome to celebrate uh, those views um, around around West Ham. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox and, and bring you in, Cal. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you've you've covered it um, perfectly. Really, um, I think uh, it will come as no surprise to anyone that's been listening for a long time. I'm I'm on exactly the same page as Jack with this, and find it increasingly infuriating. Um, to sort of see the club gifting these people the idol and the sort of borderline spiritual leader that they that they need um, as West Ham fans with fascist leanings or or fully developed fascist ideologies, um, you can't imagine a more perfect idol than your footballing hero also sharing your ideology boldly and proudly. Um, And I think you've touched on very poignantly how important it is to make sure that those people don't feel welcome. But I think it's equally important for us to make sure that everyone does feel welcome apart from them at West Ham. Um, And I think for as long as they exist as small an element of the fan base they might be as long as they are present on the terraces there are going to be even more people that will not feel comfortable going to games um and that just shouldn't be the case uh at all at any football club um but particularly at a football club who takes great pride in the fact rightly so that we come from newham which is one of the most ethnically diverse boroughs in london um and we should be very proud that we have a fan base that covers all races, all creeds, all sexualities, all classes, and every single one of those members, not just of Newham, but of, of any anyone that lives anywhere, should feel comfortable at any given time of day, at any given time of year, walking into the London Stadium and cheering on their team. And if there is an environment that exists where there are people there that mean that people that identify as members of marginalised communities, if they happen to be sat next to a fascist... <laughs> they're probably not going to want to go. Um, 
And I think the club should be doing as much as they can to rid the terraces of of those people and welcome the people who have previously felt uncomfortable into the stadium. And as long as we continue to sort of, like you say, parade um, and promote De Canio and don't acknowledge the very real link between these fans and their idol, um, it's it's not going to be the sort of community-based family club that everyone should aspire for us to have. Um, and I think that's pretty much all there is to say on it, really. Um, I think people can agree or disagree with what we've said, but that's your own prerogative. I think I speak for myself and Jack that we proudly um, will be very outspoken on this issue and any other related issues that, that arise coming from this point forward because I think we believe very firmly that West Ham and football in general is a sport for everyone and yeah as as long as it doesn't feel like that then we're still going to carry on bleating on our soapboxes I'm afraid <laughs> well said I think let me be clear on this just one, one, one final time I wouldn't as much as I would like to I wouldn't ask fans um, to or I won't in this moment ask fans to <laughs> to grapple with their individual relationships with Paolo based on their memories of what he did as a footballer. What I will ask is that the football club grapples with its relationship with Paolo Di Canio based on his outspoken political leanings and the, uh, <laughs> uh, the strength with which he clearly fills them, uh, given that he has them tattooed on his body. Uh, yeah. As long as the club fails to do that, it is going to fail elements of its fan base and promote the worst yep. people within its uh, fan base. And I think that's, yeah, the, the final, final point from me um, is that even if, and some people might come back at us with this, if it is true that Di Canio has completely renounced his fascist ideology or whatever, that's that is kind of not the point for us. The point is that it doesn't matter whether or not he is or isn't a fascist anymore. What matters is he was and the fascist fans within the club, whether he is or not, will continue to idolise him because he's saluted and because he has that tattoo and stuff. They don't read the nuances. They don't care about the nuances. All they want is someone to look up to and, and see as a fascist symbol. And if that symbol can be linked to West Ham, then even better for them. So whether or not he's fascist, racist, whatever, these fans are still going to latch onto that. And as long as we continue to give him a platform and they're in turn give the fans the idol that they want, like we've said, it's going to continue. It doesn't matter whether he's removed himself personally from it. The fans don't give a toss because they're still fascists. Precisely. The link already exists. Um, and it's something that West Ham need to be far more conscious of um well bit of a bit of a somber episode a loss <laughs> <laughs> and paolo is back at west ham which is a damn shame um but yeah i think we'll have uh well interesting things to talk about anyway uh in the next episode after the bachelor game and um, of course liverpool uh which will be fascinating because they are a very weird team this season so it will give us an opportunity to talk about 
what I expect will be a very weird football match. Um, thank you <laughs> for, for listening. Uh, please head over to analyticsunited.co.uk um, and check out setting up a membership if you want to help support the podcast. Um, it would be greatly appreciated, as I've expressed a thousand times. It costs us a boatload of money to be able to um, to produce it. Um, so, yes, um, be greatly appreciated if anyone would be willing to throw in a few quid to help us continue to make it. Um, and yeah, I should say it's, it's been going really well. So thank you. <laughs> We've had a bunch of uh, way more downloads and listeners and positive reviews than I think either of us could ever have anticipated setting up the podcast as, as free to listen to, um, for the first time. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for your support and, um, and we'll be back next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.